Welcome to What Happened Next, a podcast about newish books. My name is Nathan Whitlock, and I'm a writer. On this podcast, I speak to other writers about what happens when their new book is no longer new, and it's time to write another one. To let me know what you think of this podcast or to suggest a future guest, please go to the contact page at nathanwhitlock.ca. Before I introduce my guest, I wanted to let you know that I have a book that is not just newish, it's actually brand new. It's a novel called Lump, and it's published by the Rare Machines imprint at Dundurn Press. It's my third novel. I've read it, and it's good. You can find out more about Lump at nathanwhitlock.ca. My guest on this episode is Elise Friedman. Elise is the author of a whole bunch of things, including a number of screenplays, a collection of poetry, a collection of short stories, and a few novels, the most recent of which is The Opportunist, which was published by HarperCollins Canada in 2022. The Toronto Star Review of The Opportunist said that, quote, in exciting page-turning prose, Friedman's brilliant plotting and wonderfully devious characters act out scenes of mayhem and power struggles. Elise and I talk about how Anne of Green Gables inspired her to start writing books in the first place, why she thinks her career overall makes no real sense, and why she thinks struggling screenwriters should just write novels. You actually helped to inspire this podcast from the start. Oh. Well, when I was thinking of putting it together and I sort of had the idea... I think it was reinforced by remembering you had posted something. I can't remember if it was on Facebook or whatever, but it was about this idea of your new book, The Opportunist, and how most new books have about six to seven weeks of, of relevance and sort of publicity and that everything kind of has to happen within a month and a half. What was what was sort of going through your head at that point? Was was there any sense of uh, was it just sort of the usual like I don't want this to disappear <laughs> or uh... yeah uh, I mean I okay so this this is the my first book that I've had come out. It was basically it came out at the end of November uh, in Canada and then in the states on December the sixth. So it only had you know a few weeks to be a new book of 2022 and then I think you know it wouldn't have been uh, I wouldn't have been thinking about it quite as much had it been a spring book or a summer book and it had more time in 2022 but right. for me it just felt like okay my book literally just came out and now everyone's focused on 2023 titles so it just freaked me out a little bit were you was there any sort of anticipation that that might happen when you realized it was being published so late in the year I mean I had to be honest I hadn't really thought it through and it's not you know it's obviously it's not up to me and and I trust that the sales department and marketing and those people they have a plan like they were trying to grab the Christmas uh market and I just have to you know I didn't really think about it prior to that it it sort of hit home when I saw like three weeks after my book came out that everyone was focused on 2023 books. And I was like, oh, fuck, I just came out and I feel like I'm history. Right, right. And yet at the same time, I think I mentioned to you that I wanted to wait to have you on until your book wasn't new because 
it still feels like the opportunist is is still alive because you're still out at festivals, you're still doing readings, you're still on panels. Has some of that panic gone away a little bit because it's still you're still doing things around the book? Yeah, I mean, I didn't obviously since it came out right at the end of last year, I didn't have a chance to do anything last year, festivals, etc. So um, the stuff that I'm doing, you know, I did motive and uh, word on the street. And so that was really nice. I don't think I'll be doing any more. I think that was the end of it. I, I have one more sort of talk, but I, I don't think I'll be going to any uh, literary festivals. Um, so it feels, you know, you, you know what it's like, like you, you always want to be out there promoting. I was really, it's, it's funny. Like I really wanted to go to Winnipeg. That doesn't mm -hmm. um, get said very often, but I used to live <laughs> in Winnipeg. Yeah. And I love Winnipeg. And I basically begged <laughs> my publicist and who, you know, begged on my behalf, the Winnipeg Festival to have me and they, they declined. So that was a bummer. Um, and I, I wanted to travel because I've been in my cave for so long and I haven't been anywhere for years and years. And I just, I really wanted to go somewhere. And I don't think that's going to happen. So that's kind of disappointing. You don't have to answer this, but I have to ask. Since Winnipeg declined, have you checked the lineup of who is going to Winnipeg? <laughs> to sort of go like, that person gets to go, but not me? <laughs> that person? I haven't, but I, there is absolutely no doubt that I will. <laughs> I I I would not judge you if you did. <laughs> I do the I do the exactly the same thing. No, I I think all writers have a bit of that in them. Um, yeah, I'm not I'm not actually uh, that bitter about it. I'm just disappointed. Yeah, it's, yeah. Forget it, Elise. It's it's Winnipeg. You. <laughs> I love Winnipeg. Yeah. How long did you live in Winnipeg, by the way? I was I there for about two and a half years and it was completely, I just wanted to get out of Toronto and I just wanted to live somewhere else for a bit. And I actually looked at uh, three places, Halifax, Vancouver, and Winnipeg and, and chose Winnipeg, um, which most people can't believe, but I had a really good time there. I got a good gig, like immediately upon deciding to move to Winnipeg, I got a gig writing comedy for CBC and it was CBC radio mm -hmm. and it was fun. So uh, given that, why did you leave? Um, well, I mean, I wasn't in love with my boss at CBC at the time. Got it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, so I left and then, yeah, I came back to, I went to the film center when I got back. So, and it was enough, like I found, you know, there were really great things about Winnipeg. One, I had the world's gi most gigantic apartment. For some reason, for no reason, I rented a four bedroom apartment. <laughs> and it was huge. It had, okay, so the smaller room, the dining room had a dining room table and a ping pong table in it. And that was the small room. And then there was this living room it was massive with a big fireplace. And apparently the Winnipeg ballet used to practice in this in the living room oh my lord and it was 700 dollars a month <laughs> yeah people thought it was crazy for renting a 700 dollars apartment but it just felt so good to have you know i had spare rooms i had an office i had you know a room with a futon mattress so people could visit me and yeah 
It was great. And another thing about Winnipeg is like, if you want to go anywhere, like the symphony or a movie, you just 10 minutes before you have to be there, you drive there and you park outside and walk <laughs> in. It's very easy. Uh, you're speaking to someone who lives in Hamilton now. So I am, I am very familiar with the, uh, the shift to like, you can just show up and walk yeah. in. There's no, there's no lineup. And the period that you were in Winnipeg, had you already, you'd already been publishing uh, books at that point, correct? No, I hadn't. I oh, this is pre, this is pre your career as a writer. Yeah, yeah. I, I think what, I, I think I had written, no, I think I wrote my first novel as soon as I got back. What brought on that madness of wanting to, to leave behind, or not leave behind, but actually throw yourself into um, writing a novel? I think I always wanted to. I think I always kind of knew that I would subconsciously. I really related, even when I was like a small child, I, I really related to uh, Anne from Anne of Green Gables and she was a writer. And I just had, I don't know, I just knew I would eventually. I didn't know how to go about doing it. So when I got back from Winnipeg, I took the, uh, the Humber writers course and I had, I was paired, lucky for me, I was paired with Paul Quarrington mm -hmm. and um, I was writing poems and I was writing short stories and sending them to him. And, and at the end of it, um, I said, you know, what do you think about putting, I put together a book of these, <laughs> this is how stupid I was. Um, I, put, I put together a book of these short stories and poems and try and get that published, like together, a mashup. Oh, uh, oh I see. Um, yeah, he okay. was like, no you idiot like go write a novel and I did because he was very encouraging like he was wonderfully encouraging and then he he really facilitated that for me he just took it and handed it to his agent who handed it to Random House and yeah it was like very easy that's interesting because I was reading an interview you did years ago where you actually said you keep your prose and your screenwriting careers very separate and that that story there kind of speaks to it in the sense of you had already been doing all this creative work and doing radio scripts and and you were in the industry to some extent you were in a creative industry but yeah. then when it came to writing literary work writing books publishing you were babe in the woods you were completely yeah. naive you were like is this a book you know yeah, no, I was clueless. I had no idea. <laughs> what was the feeling when that first novel came out? What what was the world like then in terms of like what you were expecting and how that book existed in the world? I mean, it was great. I, it was a great experience. I had no expectations. I didn't know what to expect, but it was, I actually had, you know, a publicist and a tour and I went to bookstores and I got on airplanes and trains and there were newspaper articles like it was a different world back then where you could get attention mm -hmm. uh, or more readily get attention and uh yeah it was fun you almost sound like you're describing a vanished world with like <laughs> reporters with fedoras and press badges going Miss Friedman Miss Friedman <laughs> well <laughs> I wouldn't say, I don't think they were, it wasn't exactly that. I do remember going to, uh, 
paragraph books in Montreal for a reading and there were there was I think I think two people showed up so yeah. yeah yeah but you know there was there was I did go to festivals and I did you know uh leave my apartment quite a lot and that was fun and did you start to feel like this is just how writing is like you put out a book and you are all of a sudden in this world of festivals and bookstore visits and and traveling around and like minor celebrity and that's that's just how the career goes extremely extremely minor i mean <laughs> i it was uh i i didn't know what to expect and I, yeah i mean i i didn't expect it for the next book if that's what you mean like i knew that i was lucky to have had this path especially with paul corrington like i i knew i was lucky and and i didn't expect that to continue right and when do you think that you became more um i guess intentional is the word because again you said it was really Paul Corrington urging you like, no, you can't just mash a bunch of stories and poems together and call it a book. Um, go write a novel, go write a, I guess in, in his mind, he meant like, go write a real book. Did you then become more intentional about your writing and more strategic or was it still kind of like wherever your interest follows, wherever interest leads, that's where you're going to follow? Yeah, it, the latter. I have never been strategic. I always have done in retrospect, like I always uh, mess up and do the wrong thing. <laughs> I'm not strategic. I'm not a good business person. I, I just don't know what I'm doing. I think I know how to write, but I don't know how to do anything else. And I usually just end up writing what um, what interests me and what amuses me at the time, whether it's a book of poems or a book of short stories or a novel or a thriller or whatever. And I mentioned that that quote about how you said you keep your prose writing and your 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 screenwriting very separate. Um, and you even said that like prose writing is more art than craft and screenwriting is more craft than art. Is that yeah. still the case in your brain? Like, I don't, is that even possible to do to keep all these things separate? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, they're they're different. They're different animals, and I do keep them separate. And you know, the actual writing of scripts is and is very uh, gratifying. I love it. I love writing in any form. But the the stuff that happens after you write a script is just uh, can be truly terrible. There's so many people weighing in. Like I when I had a film made. And by the time I received a rough cut of it, I didn't recognize it at all. Like it had been completely rewritten without my consent. Right. Can you imagine? And that doesn't happen with books. Imagine you wrote your book and you sent it off to the publisher and it got published and then you picked it up off the shelf and somebody had completely rewritten it and you hated it. Mm -hmm. It's horrible. I was wondering if not literally applying necessarily any particular screenwriting skills but I wonder if while writing the opportunist where you whether there was any sense of pacing or narrative structure or this event leading to this event if that was somewhat informed by all of the the screenwriting that you've done no 
I don't not think at so. all. No, <laughs> and it's not. not. I don't. All right, next question. I, next. I do keep it separate. I have for all of my books, whether they're literary fiction or the thriller, I have. I just have a, I guess, a sense of momentum that things need to move along. It's not that, so I don't apply the rules of screenwriting. It's not like I'm writing the novel and I go, oh, this is the first act and I need a turn. Right. No, not at all. I have a premise and I just start writing and and then I keep writing. Like I don't do any of that screenwriting structural work with my novels, but most of my novels have plots and momentum and it's just the way I, I like to tell stories, I guess. So it's really, the, the, as stupid and obvious as it sounds, the common factor is you. It's your imagination and your creative imagination is just, you like things that move forward. Yeah. I and also, sometimes that that oh, sorry, works with it. Sometimes that works within a screenplay context and sometimes it's working within a novel context. For a screenplay that it has to, and I will follow the rules of screenwriting and I will follow the structural rules and the act rules. There are three acts and there are turning points and there are certain lengths. And I know that at this point, you know, something has to happen and there has to be a turn. So for screenwriting, I absolutely follow those rules. I'm not just winging it. But for novels, I, I completely abandon those rules and I just write. And if you were to write the screenplay for the opportunist would you do you feel you could map it using those rules or do you think you'd have to like completely pull it apart and and turn on the other part of your brain i would have to just it would be difficult i'd have to look at it as a screenwriter who's adapting something and throw away a lot of it and change a lot of it so yeah, I could do it, but I don't want to do it. Right. Just in the sense of like, it would feel violent or it would feel like. Oh, no, uh, not painful at all. to tear it apart or you just don't want to do it. You just don't have the interest. It's it's not that it would be pain. I'm not precious about it. I, I know someone else is going to do it. Uh, no, it's not that at all. It's just that I want to, I feel like uh, I want to tell other stories. I don't want to go back and tell a story I've already told I want to I have so many stories that I want to tell and I'm old as hell and I just don't want to spend a year going over a story that I've already told that makes that actually makes a lot of sense and it kind of lines up with the kind of writer who doesn't want to get stuck doing like a series or sequels or you know with one character whereas some writers like that becomes their thing they they can spin out 60s books that are roughly, you know, variations on one on one book. Right. Um, whereas you seem to have the, I mean, even within your the books that you've published, it almost feels like you completely remap your narrative rules each time. Almost you, you're you clearly your interests move away from what you what was fascinating and made you write that previous book. Yeah, it's it, and that's a nice way of saying your stuff's all over the map and your career <laughs> makes no sense. <laughs> I'm trying to I'm trying. I'm trying to like, yeah. <laughs> no, it's true. It take take no the sense. compliment. <laughs> yeah, it makes no sense. I just I write what pops into my head and what interests me, you know, for the most right. part. Right. Have you ever gone into a project where maybe your maybe your heart's not a hundred percent in it, but you know 
this will do well in whatever well means and either had to abandon it or gotten to a point where it, it just can't be done anymore like are there are there unfinished manuscripts sitting on your desktop somewhere where you just felt like i i went into that for the wrong reasons no i don't have any of those i wonder you know it's interesting because when i sold the opportunist i sold it as a two book deal so i have i'm delivering another thriller and i wonder if i'd only had the first book deal i wonder if i'd be writing the thriller that i'm currently writing maybe i would maybe i wouldn't it's not it's not that I don't like it and my heart's not into it. I just don't know if that would have been the next thing. We're getting into the realm of like, what is free will? Would you have made this choice if the choice wasn't made for you? <laughs> <laughs> there is no free will. Yeah. You know, so. I mean, Paul Corrington told you to write a novel and you went and wrote a novel mm -hmm. and now you have a two book deal. So you're writing two books. Yeah. It, it may be that all of this, um, sense that you have that that you're all over the map was really just you needed a creative director of some sort telling you like <laughs> no the next book is this and the next book after that is this and the next project after that is this yeah do I should you, have had that I guess do you think you could live under that kind of uh uh under that kind of system where you had you had no. some sort of manager no no hell no and I, do, I, I fully imagine that manager probably would not have lasted very long either. <laughs> working, would have grown very you. frustrated. You're writing uh, poems? Yeah. You not write poems? <laughs> uh, are you able to see beyond the horizon of this next, this next thriller book to after oh, the yeah. opportunist? Yeah. It's, I have to keep, it's, it's annoying because it keeps, uh, I, I keep writing it in my sleep practically like I'll wake up and I'll have been yeah it's happening in my brain and I'm trying to stop it because I need to focus on the one I'm writing but there's a the next one is already bubbling up it's already started to sort of take you over in terms of your imagination yeah yeah is it at all realistic to think that you could be working on two simultaneously or is your time so limited that you have to really just there's, grab yeah. do the one at a time yeah, one at a time and not just for the, I mean, I am behind on the one that I'm supposed to hand in and time is an issue. You know, I have a son, I have an old dad. There's just life gets in the way a lot. Um, so even getting to the one is difficult. Uh, there's no way I could do two, but even if someone said you have all the time in the world, do two at the same time, I, I couldn't do it. I, I need to focus on just one thing. You know, I have taken a, you know, a slight two or three week break here and there to work on some TV stuff or some pitches or that kind of thing. But to I wouldn't be able to write two novels at the same time. Although I did speak to, um, uh, for this podcast, I spoke to Alex Olin. Okay. Uh, and she talked about how she takes breaks from mm -hmm. novel writing and goes off and like writes a few short stories and then comes mm -hmm. back and feels like that that's almost like playing hooky from right. the main job and then comes back and, and gets back to work on the novel and that sounds delightful but I don't know that I could do it I don't know right. I would feel guilty the whole time I was working on something else that I was yeah. neglecting the main project I agree I'm the same guilt plays a role in terms of what while you're working it plays a role in everything in my life 
Yeah. <laughs> I, no, I do. I did. I did take a few weeks to to get a TV pitch together, and I did feel horribly guilty about it. Where does that stand? Is that sort of off in the world, doing its own thing, while you're back to writing the novel? Yeah. Well, it was kind of fr- my timing wasn't great because I sort of finished it, and then it got sent out you know, right before the writer's strike. So I think I had like, I had one meeting done and another set up and people just starting to read it and and then the strike happened. So it's completely on the back burner now. Are you looking to do more film work? Um, I mean, not in the sense that you would say no to a great project, but is it something that you think of in terms of you could muster up the the, the will to kind of get that moving again? I think more, I think more in terms of TV these days, because I think that's more of a writer friendly arena. Mm -hmm. Um, So the ideas that I have, I tend to, the screenwriting ideas I have, I've been sort of funneling into TV, but I do have a couple screenplays. I have one, you know, I actually turned one of them into a TV project um, that's also out there in the world. Um, So in terms of writing a feature film, I mean, I enjoy writing them, but I don't know. It's such a such a tough road. Like you, I know people who have been writing, making a living, you know, a modest living or a good living as screenwriters for 15 years, and they've ne- never had anything made. I know people. I know people in that world too, and I've never quite been able to understand the 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 workings of it. The sort of theory of the case where you create something and it goes to this stage and it goes. Publishing feels so much more concrete. It's much more closer to like human digestion in terms of the process. <laughs> like you take something in, you work on it, then you pass it out. <laughs> Whereas film writing, screenwriting just seems like, you know, it it it, it feels so diffuse and it's well, all based on like multiple funding uh, uh, platforms. For me, yeah, for me, it's more like, I would think of it more like a vineyard. So with with book writing, you know, you plant the vine, you water it, you tend it, the and then you get a grape and you pluck it and you make wine and you put the wine out into the world. Where, whereas with screenwriting, you plant the vine, you water it, you tend it for so long, you pluck the grape and, and oh no, you don't pluck the grape. Then the grape withers on the vine and then <laughs> you start all over again. Right, right. I mean, that's a much more dignified uh, metaphor <laughs> than the one I was suggesting. <laughs> Although even there, the 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 discussions I've had with people who do screenwriting, it also feels like you have to have discussions before you even plant the grape. Like there's so many discussions before the creative thing starts to happen. It's funny, you know, though, like I've been telling all of my screenwriter friends to write novels because I I was trying for, you know, I've tried for a long time to sell spec scripts and I I have optioned them often repeatedly and I get, you know, small amounts of money for them, but they don't get made. But, you know, everyone in Hollywood wants IP. They want books. They want to base movies on books. So when I wrote this book, it was like so easy to get an option. So I think rather than for screenwriters who happen to be listening to this, if they are, don't write another spec script, write a, write a novel and then write the screenplay after you sell the option. Be the, be, create the thing that gets optioned and then, and then offer yourself up to write the script. Yeah. 
you've created this this devious career move for for <laughs> for screenwriters. I recommend it. I think that's ingenious. Although I can imagine there's people in the world who would hear that and think like, why are you telling more people to go out and write novels? Why well, are you why are you true. why are you bringing people into this? I'm always fascinated too by writers who enter different worlds with their novels, different um worlds of expectation and different kind of categories. I think you have a a core readership that follows you from book to book. That would be my sister and <laughs> my son. No, I, I I don't have very many readers, I don't think. My whole purpose in this podcast is to to boost your ego to uh, <laughs> some extent. Uh, I'm not even recording this. This is all just a, a, a session. <laughs> I'll I'll charge you at the end. But I honestly think you do have a a clutch of readers who follow you from book to book, and they're like, I, "Whatever Elise Friedman's going to do, I will read that." But then I think you also gain these category specific readers with books, where you're like, "Well, I don't know what she was doing earlier, but I'm interested in a crime novel about." Uh, a wealthy family and people being devious with each other. So with The Opportunist and with the second book, do you have any feeling of that, of of entering into this sort of new world of a category and, and the expectations that brings and the readers that brings? I mean, I was hoping to, to get more readers. I, I would like that. You know, my books have been uh, well-reviewed, but I don't have, I really, really, they're not widely read. And I was hoping that with the opportunist that that would change. Uh, I don't think it particularly has, but maybe it will if it becomes a film or a TV series. Um, but yeah, no, I was, I, I really thought that this one would, would, uh, would do, I thought it would do better than it has done like I was hoping for it to do better. There was excitement right. when I sent it out before publishing, before it was published, there was excitement in the film world. Like there were a lot of, you know, there was a lot of interest in it. And I thought, okay, yay, this one's gonna work. Um, I mean, it's okay. It's better than my literary, so-called literary novels, but. But that's what I mean in that, in that sense of, you know, if this was a, one of the more literary books, you would be popping a bottle of champagne. Right, right. But there's, because you're in this other category or it, it has, yeah. it's half in this other category or it's partly, or it's, there's these, there's these other expectations. You're, you're, you're being judged against, you know, girl interrupt, not girl interrupted, but you know, that girl in the train. Or, or yeah, all the girl, yeah, all the girl yeah. books. Yeah. Uh, suddenly you're up, up against these like heavyweight bestseller airport fiction. Yeah, yeah which puts a whole other level of pressure on. Yeah. And did you feel that in terms of your expectations? Or again, have you been able to just say, I'm just writing this book and I'm going to write well, another one? Well, when I wrote the first one, I didn't think about that at all. It was just a story that amused me. And I was, I, I did think, oh, I hope this one is more commercial and will sell better. But I didn't write it. I didn't say I have to write a gone girl and make money. The story actually did just come to me and I thought, okay, I'll write a thriller. But I didn't feel pressure. I mean, I do feel, I guess I do feel some pressure 
I did feel some pressure for it to succeed. And I, I don't know, it is, I, I hope that it did well enough for me to continue to get published, <laughs> but. It also strikes me that the people who really exist within that, that particular category, mm -hmm. it feels like they are going into it with much uh, more of a sense of, of intention. Whereas you seem to have the like the stubborn integrity of an artist who just well won. I think you know thriller writers are artists I yes. I'm not a snob like I like thrillers I like good books I like good books in any genre I oh, absolutely think, yeah I think they are artists and I think that with a thriller if you have a successful thriller like and, and I don't mean you know sales success I mean quality success there's a lot of craft that goes into it it's not like i i find that people do have i i i i kind of don't like that idea that you know i'm a literary novelist who's slumming it with a thriller like i i feel like thrillers can be uh literary I don't no know. i i that was not that was not what i meant at all and i i totally agree i feel like it's actually harder to hide or like if you write a bad thriller or a bad horror novel or a bad romance, like if you yeah. are writing a bad one, your readers will figure you out quickly. You will get exposed because those are readers who don't suffer good at just good intentions. Whereas I actually feel like you can get a lot of, you can, you can put one over on a lot of literary readers with good intentions um, in the sense of like, I think this one is about things that I agree with or certain themes that I'm interested in. I don't know that I quite connected, but that's probably me. And I'm right. probably just too stupid to understand it. Yeah. Whereas I feel like someone who's reading a particular genre book has very clear expectations and they want those expectations to be met, but also exceeded and surprised. And you can mess with formula and you can mess with genre a bit. But they'll spot you if you're being lazy. I'm overgeneralizing. I don't. I don't know about that. You know, the thing is, like, I in in prep for writing this, I started to. I did read a bunch of popular thrillers, and some of them were really good, and a lot of them were very terrible and mm -hmm. very popular. So I don't know what, if what you're saying is true because a lot of people seem to embrace uh, shitty thrillers. <laughs> they they do like there's there's so much uh there's so many that are generic and full of cliches and they're just you know half of them like they were blurring in my mind I couldn't even keep them apart because they were so similar so there are a lot of crappy poorly written thrillers that do really well actually well maybe it's the it's the issue of quality is not what I what I was intending. I was more meaning that if you're writing within that particular any particular genre category, you go into it with more of an intention of more of a sense of where what the the market requires and that means if I write this book, it's got to work this way, I craft it this way. And then I can write another one and then I write another one and, and there's you sort of see like oh did that work? Uh, do a try that and work that there's just more intention whether it's good or not is you know whether the writer is a good writer and put took it seriously and has some sort of talent but there's an intentionality behind it 
as opposed to the more literary view of like, I'm just writing this book and who knows what comes next and I'll follow my muse wherever it leads me. Yeah. If you're a, a, a genre writer, you have to keep in mind, again, regardless of the ultimate quality, you, you, you've got to write another one and then another one and then another yeah. one. And it has to be within that category. You can't then say, eh, I'm kind of not feeling it this time. I'm going to try something else. That's true. It, yeah. It's more of the, um, if yeah. you're the kind of person who's sort of project by project, which it sounds like you are. Yeah. It may be that you're just at a disadvantage because you could write a great thriller and the opportunist is this like juicy great book but within that category it's not just one book it's the next dozen too <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah you know to the yeah, point no, where you you, you got to get your name so it's sort of the raised print on the cover it's that like <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah the moment your your name is bigger on the cover than than the title that's when yeah. you know you've you've hit that rich seam of uh within your category yeah, the bumpy name. I, that's never going to, I'm never going to be the one thing person. And that maybe is is the answer to this whole question. It's like, you are writing these books because you're excited about them and you're excited about these books, but you're not excited about being that author. You're more no. interested in writing a book rather than being the embossed name on the cover. Yeah, yeah. In fact, the one that, the, so I'm working on one now, and the, the one that's bubbling up is also, uh, I don't know if it's a thriller, it's a suspense novel, there's crime elements, so I'm not veering, and I'm not suddenly going to write, you know, the most literary novel in the world after the one that's next also has those elements, but yeah, you're right, it's, it's different from the opportunist, and it's different from the one I'm writing now. Well, this is where, this is where a creative director could, could, again really help to, yeah. to to map out the next six books of your career i know i should i need a i need someone like that because i'm so hopeless with uh, that stuff well i i want to uh well i, I want to thank you for doing this but also i want to uh express my hope that with the next book comes the raised letters <laughs> thank you that would be and nice. that we get that we get that third dimension on the cover yeah. Or maybe the kind that has like the cutout. Ooh. And it's like a, like a little girl's frightened face and you open up and yeah. The cutout, even better. And I'm glad we were able to do this, even with the uh, technological uh, with technological issues. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. I even put on like lipstick. Well, I was going to say, I, I've been staring at a picture of a, a sunflower the whole time. <laughs> So at, at a certain point, I just imagine like, well, that's what she looks like. She's just a big. <laughs> what Happened Next is produced and edited by me. The music playing under my voice is by the great Alex Lukashevsky, who is letting me use it for free. You can find more of Alex's music at alukashevsky.bandcamp.com. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. There will be a new episode every Monday. Please buy more books, and not just new ones. 